the Irish Times business podcast in association with Irish Life. We're here to support your company and your employees now and in the future. We know Irish Life. We are Irish Life. Hello and welcome to the Irish Times Business Podcast. This is Wednesday, February 3rd. I'm Kieran Hancock. And on this week's show, we'll be looking towards the upcoming general election and the promises we're likely to be made by the various political parties. We'll also be examining Vodafone's offer to facilitate the sale of its shares by Irish investors with small holdings in the company. And don't forget, you can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, where it will be delivered to your device each week for free. But we'll start first with the general election. Taoiseach Enda Kenny ended weeks of speculation by announcing today that the election will be held on February 26th. The economy is set to be the key battleground and we can expect much talk about the fiscal space that will be available to the next government. To make sense of what all of this means for voters, I'm joined in studio by economist Jim Power and Arthur Beasley, economics editor of the Irish Times. Arthur Beasley, what is this so-called fiscal space and how much of it have we got? Well, in a nutshell, the fiscal space is the amount of money that any government believes it has to allocate towards tax reductions and expenditure increases after domestic and European fiscal rules are complied with. So if you take the starting point in in any... Yes, absolutely. If you take the starting point in any budget process as being that the plan being put in place must get the deficit down by a particular amount or must bring the debt ratio down by a particular amount, the fiscal space uh, is supposed to say what amount of money is going to be available for all the other stuff when once those rules are met. The fiscal space in the last budget was 1.5 billion. That was 750 million for tax cuts and 750 million for expenditure increases. Now, in conventional terms, we would say there was a 1.5 billion expansionary budget. But this new expression, fiscal space, has emerged into our political discussion, and that's essentially what it's about. It's, a, it's an inelegant expression, it seems to me, but it's another way of saying this is the largesse available to the government. But the key point is it's only after the rules are complied with. Jim Power, the various parties seem to be coming out with some different figures in terms of the amount of fiscal space that will be available to us. I mean, the government figures higher than Fianna Fáil. They're both relying on Department of Finance uh, figures. And the Fiscal Advisory Council is saying that the amount available will, will be less again. Yeah, we have uh, variations from about $3.5 billion up to about $12.5 billion, depending on who you listen to. And so 12.5 being Fine Gael, basically. Uh, yes, ab- absolutely. And, and, the, and being the, the Fiscal, fiscal advisory, advisory Council at the other end. And I think Fianna Fáil around the Everybody nine, else is nine, some, nine somewhere, somewhere in between. Uh, the point about the fiscal space is that, you know, the first time I came across it was back in about 2005 when the IMF started talking about the fiscal space. And what became very clear from their analysis was that nobody can define what the fiscal space is. It depends on a whole range of assumptions you make. You know, you look at the growth of the economy, you look at the, the structure of the taxes you're collecting. So in other words, if you assume that what happened in Irish corporation tax last year is going to be maintained and grow over the next five or six years, that obviously has implications for fiscal space. If you look at the structure of um, spending in the economy and if you adjust it for the growing Number one, the growing population. Number two, the aging population. You know, that has implications for how much money you will automatically have to increase health spending by. So there's a whole range of things that you can, you have to build into calculating your fiscal space. And to be honest, I think it's a nonsense concept. And what I would like to see is a politician standing up over the coming days and promising if re-elected to government, we are not going to cut taxes 
we are only going to increase spending on public services once we have restructured the manner in which public services are delivered because we have a habit in this country of throwing more and more money at public services without getting anything in return. Well, it doesn't sound like it's a, a, a vote-catching idea. It's not, well, it's, it's not going to happen, you see. Sounds that's, like you're going to be very, very disappointed, Jim, in the next few days. I'm, I'm going to be very, very disappointed. There's no doubt about that. But, you know, if you look at an economy that's growing last year at a rate of about 6.8%, strong momentum coming into 2016, we saw the first month's exchequer returnings showing very strong tax revenue buoyancy. Um, is there a requirement to start injecting stimulus into that sort of an economy? Well, in my view, there's not. Um, to me, I am a cautious conservative economist, and I believe now is the time to batten down the hatches and recognise that about 70% of our growth performance over the last couple of years has been driven by external factors. So Michael, Michael Noonan is talking about a rainy day fund. That must resonate with you. But. It, it certainly does. Ab- absolutely. I think the priority is to get sovereign debt levels down. Uh, the priority is to build up resilience um, when the next shock hits us. Um, and as I say, a lot of the growth has been driven by external factors that are outside of our control. You know, any one of those or some other shock could hit us at any stage. So um, we need to be in a position and I was listening to, to sustain that. I was listening to Jerry Adams, leader of uh, Sinn Féin, uh, talking this morning, and he said that their plan is to cut property tax, it's to eliminate water charges, and it's to restructure the USC to take a whole raft of people out of having to pay for USC. Well, to me, that makes no sense whatsoever. Um, I mean, we need water charges in this country because if we're ever going to improve the water infrastructure, we're going to have to pay for it. And we're not paying for it in the general taxation system at the moment, as far as I'm concerned. Um, I think the big mistake that the government made and was obviously done for political reasons was to get rid of the notion of pay-per-use, which is the sensible way of charging for water. Instead, we got a mishmash uh, of nothing really. But the notion that we would now turn around and abolish water charges, the notion that we would turn around and abolish property tax and take a lot more workers out of the tax net altogether is, is just doing exactly what we did between 2000 and 2007. It's narrowing the tax base in a very dangerous way. We need to broaden the tax base. Arthur Beasley, when uh, Bill Clinton ran for president in 1992, one of his strategists, uh, James Carville, uh, apparently posted a big sign in the campaign war room that read, it's the economy, stupid. Is that going to be the case in this election? It's still the economy, stupid, it seems to me. Uh, I, I was struck by the images this morning, I have to say, of the Taoiseach's car driving out of government buildings on the way to Orison in Phoenix Park. And when you cast your mind back to the last time Aethysia went to the Oris to call an election, uh, it's clear that the country was in a very, very, very bad state at that point and there was a huge level of uncertainty. The country had just entered an EU IMF programme. Uh, no one knew whether the banks where, where the banks were going. And really, you know, it was a really quite a chaotic and a, a terrible time, really. So, I mean, you know, the, the economy has turned around and extraordinary progress has been made, but the recovery is still fragile. Jim speaks of the, you know, the, uh, the questions that surround, you know, fiscal space and the plans to spend a bit more money and the economic argument is very well made. But an election is a political process. There is a political sense that the people had to give an awful lot in order to help the economy to turn around. And that's why you have the debate around what exactly the people are going to get by way of largesse. Now, the question is, of course, it seems to me that you have a debate around fiscal space and how much are the people going to get back? 
But all of that assumes that everything is going to go well in the economy, that the economy will be sadly managed, the targets will be met, and that steps there will be capacity to take mm. uh, measures in mitigation of any shock. Because without any of that, there'll be no fiscal space for anyone, whatever you call it. And Jim, we're in a sweet spot at, at the minute, aren't we, in terms of our exchange, exchange rate, for example. The weak euro against the dollar and sterling is playing well for our tourism, is playing well for exports. And low and oil. And we've got low oil prices as well. Well, I think we've been hit by four incredibly beneficial factors over the last 18 months. The collapse in oil prices, uh, the interest rate and quantitative easing policy pursued by the European Central Bank, um, the decline in the value of the euro against sterling and the dollar, and also the relative strength of the US and UK economies uh, compared to the euro area. So those four factors have been incredibly beneficial for Irish growth. And, uh, you know, as I say, all four are outside of our control. Uh, and, I, and I have no doubt, you know, that there will be an external shock over the next couple of years. Where do you think it'll come from? uh, It may be, well, China is obviously top of the pile at the moment and we've just had the worst start to the year for equity markets in generations, all emanating out of China, the collapse in commodity prices. Uh, If you look at global geopolitics at the moment, it's, it's kind of scary out there. So my view would be that the more fiscal largesse we see over the next two or three weeks Mm. being promised and ultimately delivered, um, the less, the less, strong position will be than when those shocks We've hit. even got the extraordinary situation in the Middle East where a lot of these oil-rich Gulf states are having to borrow to fund their day-to-day services they because are the price of oil is so low. Yes. Some of the big drivers of the world economy over the last five or six years, the emerging economies, are in serious difficulty at the moment, um, not least because of the collapse in commodity prices. Yeah. Arthur, there's no doubt, though, that people feel that you know they put up with a lot of uh, pain over the last uh, six, seven years, and it was their money and they'd like some of it back. I, I, I think it's I think it's absolutely the case. And if, if you look at the change in the message, if you like, from the from Fine Gael, the main government party, you know, at the very outset of this political process, if you look back a couple of years ago, when the uh, era of relentless retrenchment came to an end, when we had the last of the austerity budgets, there was a, there were modest cuts to the USC two budgets back. And the question was raised as to how further would the government go? And at that time, Michael Noonan, the finance minister, was saying, look, at we get €4 billion Euro from USC, and that's a lot of money, and there isn't really scope to eliminate it. And it seems to me that they're getting the message back via focus groups or wherever else they pick up the political messaging, that really that the centre of uh, public agitation and the, uh, the, the anger that taxpayers have over everything they've they've had to bear in recent times is centered on the USC and that is why this whole plan to eliminate the USC is now front and center of the Fine Gael, uh, manifesto as it goes into the election now look at you you, the, you you say you're going to eliminate USC. You're going to take four billion out of the tax take. It seems to me you know, the the question of elimination is another way of saying tax reform, and that whatever they are not going to take four billion euro off the tax take in a state which is only just about this year set to take uh, set to take in an equivalent amount of tax as it was taking in going into the crisis. Yeah, Jim, are we in cloud cuckoo land thinking that the USC could simply be abolished over the lifetime of the next doll? Uh, it, could, it could, of course, be abolished. Uh, there's no doubt about that. You will get the tax revenue buoyancy that would enable it to be abolished. But if it's abolished, 
um, it means there will be less money available to invest in public services. You know, there's a pretty simple trade-off here between spending and taxation. If you're not taking in sufficient tax revenues, you're not going to be able to spend enough money. Um, I, I mean, I totally take Arthur's point about, you know, I'm talking economics here. It's ignoring political realities. And as we know, politics is about power. The only way you will ever get policies implemented is to be in power. So politicians will do whatever it takes. And I think uh, there are people, you know, in government at the moment, particularly who are looking at John Major's first uh, general election in the UK, where uh, he was expected to be decimated and weeks coming up to the election, he took out the soapbox box and went around the country and he sent out one very... I think he took an egg as well. He uh, did, he did. But he sent out one very clear message at that stage that I think still resonates, particularly in this country. If you vote Labour, higher taxes. If you vote Tories, lower taxes. That was the choice and it worked for him. And I still think that sort of mindset is driving a lot of the political process in this country. And, and that's the political reality, and I totally accept yeah, that. Mind you, it's not, it's, not quite, it's not quite the message that Labour is giving out. Well, the, the, Labour will radically reduce USC, but they say they're not going to eliminate it. And this is USC, they say, on income up to €70,000. No, but Labour are also yeah. promising more spending on of social services. Of course they are, yes, of course. Well, I mean, it's the Labour Party here, you know. I mean, but everyone is promising more expenditure. I mean, there's no, I mean, there's no end of plans for expenditure. It seems to me, though, I mean, you know, let's get back to what's going on in this election. This is an economy which is gradually recovering uh, from a deep, deep crisis, uh, an existential uh, threat over the very viability of the state. Thankfully, things have improved, but it's only with sound management that you actually get to do these other things, such as increasing expenditure in a state which had to put so much money into its banks. And and the I mean, and it's only if things are going right in the economy that you do get scope to reduce the tax bill sure, a little. Isn't that, Bear isn't in mind here on the state the message, Isn't that the message from Michael Noonan and Brendan Helen? You can trust us. You can't necessarily trust the others. Well, that that that, that is, and I suppose I mean a, a, that that has to be questioned as well because there's no point in kind of saying look at we have 12 billion which we're going to uh, give away uh, over the next five years if all goes well uh, the measure of the the quality of that promise if you like uh, shall be determined by the quality of the economic plan underpinning it Jim how would you rate the performance of the outgoing government uh, and based on one if, to ten ten being very good um in terms of economic management, I'd probably give 8 out of 10. Um, obviously helped a lot by external developments, as I've said. But if I was advising government parties at the moment on fighting this election, I'd be saying to them, um, you look at economic indicators in March 2011, you look at economic indicators in February 2015, and every single economic indicator today is significantly better than it was then. Uh, and employment being the most important one. You know, we have 135,500 more people at work at the end of last September. The banks have been sorted out. The banks have been sorted out to some extent. Yeah, consumer spending is coming back. Um, The public finances, Mm. you know, are why isn't the government getting the benefit in the polls? Well, this is the point, I suppose. There are other issues that have been handled a lot less well. Um, The setting up of the Irish Water Company, for example, was a political fiasco. Um, what's happening in the health service, you know, whatever the truth is, uh, but the picture that's painted of the health service is a very bad one. Um, so it's, it's factors like that and a lot of sort of political bumbling over the last few years. Do you remember we had the situation with that senator that tried to um, 
appointed the channel mm. a couple of years back that created all sorts of so the political handling has not been great but I think the economic management has been pretty good and the one thing that this government can certainly say it did was to restore the international reputation of Ireland because back in 2011 Ireland was regarded as a busted flush externally and for a country that's so dependent on foreign direct investment for tourism and so on uh, your international reputation is vital. So the government certainly achieved that and the government also brought political stability to the situation. So I, I think the scorecard is pretty decent. I think if you, if you look at it now, right, what are, what are the legacies of the crash? Even though the, the public finances order has been restored, economic growth has been restored, employment is growing, all of these things. But if you look at the legacies of the crash, we have this super large national debt, which remains a, a, an incredibly huge burden on the uh, public finances and will for a good many years to come. We also have a public service which has been very constrained in the resources going through it. Austerity and retrenchment was all about reducing public expenditure. And it's inevitable after a very long corrective process that you have uh, you have uh, faults remaining in the system and a system which is crying out for investment. And it seems to me whenever the next government comes in and whomever is elected, they are going to be de dealing with a tension between the demands for expenditure in a system which has been starved of resources and then these very pressing demands from taxpayers to get something back because after all it was the taxpayers who funded it. And if you look at the banks... The bank's got 64 billion up front, and that was two euro for every one euro of tax collected in 2010, the worst year for tax collection in the crash. Yeah. Jim, Fianna Fáil uh, leader Michal Martin was saying today that uh, with the health service, for example, that he would uh, increase capacity to deal with waiting lists. He would uh, reintroduce the Why national... the hell didn't he do it when he was Minister for Health? Well, indeed. But he would also introduce more frontline staff and he would uh, resume the National uh, Treatment Fund, um, which we had operating and, and James mm -hmm. Riley abolished. And if you uh, listen to them on virtually every other... You know, in terms of rural crime, they'll have more guards on the beat uh, they'll probably add more to our army and they'll probably add more people to the OPW to run our parks and this, that and the other. I mean, it just doesn't add up really. Does no, it? It, it does not add up. No, absolutely not. You know, if you look at how much we collect in tax revenues, if you look at how much we spend running the country, um, and I suppose more importantly, if you take a forward-looking view, um, you look at the impact of demographics, particularly the ageing population, is going to have very fundamental implications for the health service and the, the level of service required from the health service. If you look at the pension situation, you know, Ireland is in a very, very bad place regarding future pension provision, uh, perhaps not as bad as some of our European counterparts, but still it's in a bad place. So Ireland's demographics suggest that the automatic pressure for increased public spending will be immense over the coming years. And against that sort of backdrop, just throwing money at everything at the moment just does not make sense. Um, I think, you know, in an ideal world, you would look at the, the, the whole concept of value for money in terms of public, public services. There's been way too much focus in this country on inputs rather than outputs. You know, we hear governments and politicians talking about how much money they've spent in health, education, etc. They have been a lot less anxious to look at the outcomes from that spending. So 
one thing that would worry me is that if you have a basically inefficient system for delivering public services and if you just throw more money into that system, you're going to reinforce the inefficiencies. So Isn't that the problem in the, the yeah. Bertier Hearn era? That it, you have vast increase in public expenditure, particularly in the health service. I mean, mm. money wasn't the problem, really. No. It seems to me the management was the problem. Yeah, but there's another is- issue as well that within the health service particularly, you have the most powerful vested interest groups that prevent real reform Absolutely. You know, ac- across the board. And if you don't tackle that, which we will not do, um, throwing more and more money into the system just is not going to deliver a better health, health outcome for the population of the country. That, to me, is a depressing vista, but it's, uh, I think it's reality. Yeah. When, when, when people talk about uh, increasing money in the army and, and all of that, I mean, I would have thought that the last thing uh, this country needs at the moment is a dose of the military-industrial complex. Yes, indeed. Yeah. Well, I mean, Enda Kenny did take to the country the uh, plan to abolish the Shannon, which would have saved us a few quid and taken a number of politicians out of, out of circulation, but that was uh, roundly rejected. And by I campaigned for it. But it was defeated, sadly. Right, OK. Arthur, is it credible for Fianna Fáil and, and Micheál Martin to be going around lecturing the government on its performance in the past five years when they effectively ruined the economy? Well, they're the ones to answer that. But when you do ask them, they say, yes, it is absolutely credible for them to do that because their plan is costed, they say. And they say that they've learned the lessons of the crash. Um, but, I mean, this is the party which was in power for so many years uh, in the run-up to the crash, uh, you know, th- election victories in 97, uh, 02, uh, 07. And, uh, you know, it, it, I, I think there are still doubts there. I think, you know, Fianna Fáil very possibly could have a good election in certain rural parts of the state. But it seems to me to be widely accepted that the tide is still pretty much out for the party in uh, the capital. The Dublin electorate is very volatile, but uh, I don't think we're going to be waking up on the, the weekend after uh, Friday the 26th to learn of uh, dozens of seats uh, being won by Fianna Fáil uh, right throughout the state, over and above what they already hold, which and is very pretty seats. low. Yes, yeah. you know, so I mean, I, they will they will make gains. But uh, I, I mean, but there is this other question as to whether Fine Gael, uh, plus Labour, which want to get back in the government, whether the deficiency in seats uh, underneath a majority would be such as to put Fine Gael with, as, to, as, as to leave Fine Gael with no option but to do business with Fianna Fáil. And that's another question. Yeah, Jim, do you see that as being a possibility? Well, over the last couple of years, I think every presentation I've delivered at various fora, I've always put down as Ireland's biggest risk factor uh, being the domestic political situation uh, because the opinion polls have made it very clear over the last couple of years that forming a stable government um, will not be easy. And, you know, if you look at what the bookmakers are saying at the moment, 61 seats max for Fine Gael, around eight seats for Labour. That's 10 short of a majority. So where will those 10 come from? Mm. So, and, and if you look at across the range of the Independent Alliance, for example, uh, there's a lot of very, very different independents in there. And it's hard to see how they would bring stability and coherence to a government. So I, I think we risk... You know, going back to the early 1980s where we had three elections in an 18-month period, political instability... That would be a nightmare, wouldn't it? A total nightmare. Political instability is not good for business confidence. It's not good for the reputation of a yeah. country. So uh, I, and, I would yet, seriously uh, worry... A, a, a yeah. Fianna Fáil, Fianna Gael coalition, it just seems like an unrealistic prospect. I mean, it could be Michal Martin signing Fianna Fáil's death warrant. Uh, well, I think it would be political suicide for Fianna Fáil, absolutely. Um, because what you would see then is... Uh, 
I think, a pretty dramatic polarisation of the Irish political system um, as between right and And we've and had left. it somewhat already. And we've had that somewhat already, but one of the victims of that, I think, undoubtedly would be Fianna Fáil. Because mm-hmm. if you look at the quality of the people Fianna Fáil have um, elected at the moment, you know... Uh, I better be judicious in my use of language here, but, you know, a lot of them are not exactly stellar performers and and you couldn't see him playing a leading role in the future of the country. There are some talented people in there all right, but I I think it would be inevitable if Fianna Fáil went into government with Fianna Gael um, that it would spell the end of Fianna Fáil ultimately. I mean, you're somebody who's in in touch with international investors from time to time. Have you any sense that there are concerns mounting uh, outside of Ireland, in the boardrooms of these foreign multinationals, about the the future composition of the government and the fact that this left or hard left um, that we've seen over the last number of years, that they could have some influence in all of this. Yes, um, there there are concerns, ab- absolutely, because um, if we got a lurch to the hard left in this country, I, I certainly think that the operating environment for business would deteriorate. You would get greater level of instability in the system, and um, anybody contemplating investing in this country. Country, you know, would have to bear that in mind. Um, so, yeah, it, it's it's certainly a concern. But on the other hand, it's not a concern that's reflected in our bond yields, for example, um, Irish but 10-year ECB, rates. But the ECB is about uh, 7.6 billion yes, of yes, our bonds. Exactly. I mean, kind of, this, is a, this is a market it's, price, yeah. but it's, a, it's not exactly... It's the, not it's a not, market. It's, yeah, it's yeah, not absolutely. the free market as it yeah. is. But never, I mean, I, I, I think Jim makes a, a, a fair point. I think that... Uh, those kind of concerns are to be picked up. They are certainly out there. I think it is the case that international banks have started to look at this election. That's always the way uh, in the weeks leading into an election. But I don't gauge any sense of acute uh, alarm right now. I think if we had a series of opinion polls which pointed to uh, you know a, you know total fragmentation in the doll, a hung parliament, uh, and the lack of clarity over who exactly was going to be uh, taking over in government, and the la- and a lack of clarity over fiscal policy uh, in the immediate term, I think then you would expect to see some volatility on markets, notwithstanding ECB intervention. It's kind of interesting if you look at um, Italy and Spain over the last couple of months. I mean, Italy would traditionally have had a higher bond yield than Spain because of you know, its, its fiscal situation and the, the well-known problems. But over the last couple of months since Podemos uh, became part of government, um, it has switched. Spanish bond yields are now higher than Italian bond yields. So the risk premium on Spain has increased as a result of um, political developments. And I totally take Arthur's view that, you know, the bond markets at the moment are very artificial because of what the quantitative easing and well, ECB well, bond be, buying. The bedraggled Irish state could borrow yes. this week at less yes. than 0.85 yes. of 1%. Mm. But, 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 but still, you know, I do believe if, if you had a market that was yeah. any way normal, you would see a political risk premium being built into That's Irish bond okay. yields as they are into Spanish bond yields at the moment. OK, I'm going to close the segment of the show by asking you both very quickly to give me your prediction on the election. Who do you think the next government will be? Uh, I think it will be Fine Gael, Labour and some independents. Arthur? I'm inclined to agree with Jim. I think the question is uh, quite how many independents. Uh, clearly, from the perspective of stability, the fewer the better, uh, because that's the way these things work. 
Okay, just to remind you, uh, our election coverage, uh, you can visit Irish Times website at irishtimes.com. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter at Irish Times Paul, P-O-L, for all the latest coverage of the general election campaign, including extra episodes of the Inside Politics podcast. That closes the first half of our show. We're going to take a short break now, but join us after the break where we're going to be having a look at Vodafone's share offer. At Irish Life, we can tell you that 49% of employees in Ireland don't think about tomorrow. They don't have a pension plan. We can help you help them. Because if you're involved in running your company's pension plan, we can administer it for you. With our member-specific investment solutions, online access for employers, trustees and members, and always on smartphone apps. Just call one of our corporate team on 01704-1845. Visit irishlifecorporatebusiness.ie or contact your pension consultant to find out how we can help your company think of tomorrow. We know Irish Life. We are Irish Life. Irish Life Assurance PLC is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland. All information source for Irish Life September 2014. Now you're welcome back. I'm joined in studio by Dominic Coyle, the Deputy Business Editor with the Irish Times and our resident expert on Vodafone shares. Uh, Dominic, you had a great story in this morning's paper about Vodafone's plan to assist Irish investors to sell their holdings in the company via a low-cost broking service. Uh, hard to believe, but there are 334,342 Irish shareholders in Vodafone. Tell us, remind us how they uh, ended up with these shares and what exactly uh, Vodafone is planning to do. Well, these guys are the legacy of the, the great experiment in shareholder democracy in Ireland when uh, then-Minister Mary O'Rourke floated uh, what was Telecom Aaron. Now, well, Aircom. since Aircom, now Air. Um, and there were almost 600,000 people got involved in that at the outset. A very, very small number had the good sense to get out quickly before the shares started sliding. Uh, but you can see the scale of, of, of performance for those shares and the fact that 335,000 almost are still there 16 years, almost 17 years later. Right, OK. Now, uh, Vodafone acquired Aircell, which was the mobile arm of uh, tele- the old telecom, Aaron, and that's how those 335,000 people ended up with uh, Vodafone shares. But many of them had very small holdings, don't they? Oh, many very small holdings. I mean, people forget that that was the first time Vodafone got into the Irish market. Aircell was probably the most valuable part of Telecom Aaron back then. Uh, Vodafone bought it, but uh, decided to pay for it in shares rather than in cash. So people who probably didn't even know the name Vodafone suddenly found themselves holding shares in Telecom Aaron and Vodafone. Um, neither of which have done very well since, but um, they since since then they've they've just been been waiting for a chance to to actually get out in the money. That hasn't been possible, but and most of them have very very few shares. There's a hundred thousand plus with of people who have between one and fifty shares. The average holding for those guys is about twenty seven shares. That's basically eighty quid's worth of Vodafone stock. And how much would it cost if they were to try and sell out their shares at the minute? In in the for in a normal, normal deal, course of events. for a normal deal, if you were and you were holding a paper certificate and you were going to your stockbroker to sell those shares, it would probably cost you about sixty euro. Wow. Okay. So Vodafone has decided in its wisdom that it will offer a facility for those shareholders to sell their stock uh, at no cost, or mm-hmm. if they hold more than forty shares, I think there is a small cost. Yeah, for for people with fifty or fewer shares, it's zero cost. Mm. Uh, I should bear should mention, of course, that Vodafone aren't entirely pessimistic. They are also holding up the prospect in this in this transaction that you might want to buy shares. But right. the expectation in Ireland clearly is that most most people will sell. This isn't purely an Irish system. This is for their small shareholders, both in the UK and Ireland. But it it shows that the the telecom earn factor. There are three hundred thirty five thousand in Ireland. Only sixty-seven thousand odd in in the whole of the UK, right? Okay, so, and presumably they want to, from a cost point of view, they want to tidy up their share register. Exactly, it's it, a lot, it's, a lot it's of postage, a lot of mailing, kind of... keeping in touch with all these people. Okay. 
Now, what if you want to gift the shares? Can you do that? You can. You can gift the shares. There's, a, there's an option to gift the shares to a crowd called Share Gift. Now, they're, they're a UK outfit that that's ch- take uh, shares from people who wish to donate and channel, they sell them on then and, and channel the proceeds into various charities, UK and Irish charities. Uh, the, the one thing people need to be aware, though, is whatever decision you make in terms of either selling your shares or gifting your shares, you must do it with all your shares. You can't suddenly say, I'd like to sell 25 and give the other 25 to share gift. Whichever option it's you choose, it's, it's, yeah, you do give your whole tranche over in that offer. Okay. And is there a specific time window uh, for, for this to happen? There is. Uh, they, people have been getting letters. Hopefully, they'll have started getting letters from this morning for people who hold the shares in paper form. If they hold the shares in electronically in what's a Vodafone share account, they should be getting an email. Uh, the shares will be sold between the 23rd of February and the 24th of May. The, a bit like a lot of these sort of deals, Verizon's the same. They will sell the shares twice a week. So they'll gather whatever shares come in over the course of a number of days. And on Tuesday, they'll flog what they have. Thursday, they'll flog what they have. And, and they send out then the remittance notices to, to the relevant shareholders. Okay, I presume they're expecting a large take-up of this offer. I would say they're probably hoping for a large take-up of the offer, but yes, I think they're expecting in, in Ireland. We, we in this paper have been, been uh, lobbying Vodafone for some considerable time to introduce an offer like this because a lot of the readers who contact us have been looking for options to get out. So, uh, so I'd say there'll be, be a lot of interest in, in doing so. And what are the potential tax implications for people? Well, for people with between 1 and 50 shares, in fact, for zero for them, even though they're, they're, they're not paying any charges, these shares are losing money. Uh, the revenue determined, th- there's been lots of transactions between getting Verizon shares, Vodafone shares, Telecom shares. People have lost most of, most of the along the way. Vodaf- revenue determined that you would need to get €4.58 Euros 58 per share in order to be breaking even. Those shares are trading at the moment roughly at €2.96, Euros 96, or the sterling equivalent of €2.96. Euros 96. So even though you're selling them for nothing, you're still losing money on this transaction. All you're getting is a chance to finally get out of this, this game after 17 years have been locked in. Right. And do you have any sense? I don't know if you've worked out these uh, figures, but let's say somebody invested €1,000 in uh, Telecom Aaron shares back in the day. Have you any sense of what their loss, uh, will, what loss will be crystallised by, by selling these Vodafone shares? Uh, no, well, we haven't, I haven't crunched the numbers on that yet, but uh, the loss they're making in this time will roughly equate to the loss they made. Well, no, that's not true. It'll be slightly more than mm-hmm. the loss they made on the Verizon transaction mm-hmm. and on Sir Anthony O'Reilly taking back the original Telecom Aaron in private. Okay. But they've lost money consistently along the way. Yeah, of course they did get dividends, some dividend payments, some handsome one one pound and two pence uh, and, and such like dividend payments they, per year. They have had a few cash payments and a few dividend payments. They'll not be celebrating. They're still out of the money. Yeah, right. Okay. Um, and do we know what this is going to cost Vodafone? No, we don't. Uh, Vodafone haven't said haven't said how much how much they're investing in in uh, in conducting this transaction. It's not an unusual thing to do. A lot of companies do occasionally decide to clean up their their share register by just offering this this option for very small shareholders. I mean, in the case of Verizon, which is related to this, there are many Irish shareholders who have just one Verizon share. As I said, there are many Vodafone okay. shareholders of just 27 or less. And just to be clear, if somebody has, uh, let's say, 50 shares in Vodafone decides to sell, do they need to declare this to the revenue, even though they might be crystallising a loss as such? I don't believe... It, they don't need to, to declare to the revenue that they're, they're crystallising a loss. What they will need to do is, is if they make a capital gain at a later point and they're looking to offset this loss against it, they will need to file all those details and the dates and, and the, the amounts... Uh, with the revenue at that time. So they certainly need to keep the details of. But I, my understanding is you don't need to file a a, for, a declaration of, of a capital loss. 
Okay, and just very quickly, what do you, uh, just remind us, what do Vodafone shareholders need to do? If they want to sell, what do they need to do? There's a, the information pack they've got gives them a dealing form, and they, depending on whether they're selling, buying, donating shares, there are different sections of that form that they need to fill out. If they have a paper share certificate and they can't find it, and they're saying, crikey, I'm going to lose out my chance to finally get out of this show, there is an indemnity um, section on the back of the dealing form that they fill out to say, look, I have, I have got a share certificate, but I can't find it. And that just covers computer share and Vodafone just in case two separate people tried to claim back on the same shares. Right, okay. All right, well, we'll see how that goes in the uh, coming weeks and months. Um, that's it from this week's Irish Times Business Podcast. My thanks to Jim Power, Arthur Beasley and Dominic Coyle for joining me in the studio. Declan Conlon produced the show with JJ Vernon as sound engineer. Don't forget you can get the latest business news straight into your inbox by signing up to our Business Today email at irishtimes.com. You can also follow the business news on our Twitter and Facebook feeds. I'm Kieran Hancock. Until next time, take care.